Hello and welcome to the second in CMEX debate series for the Conservative Party Conference 2023, CPC 23. I'm Charlotte Leslie. I'm the director of the Conservative Middle East Council. CMEX was set up more than 40 years ago under Margaret Thatcher by Lord Carrington to help Conservative parliamentarians and others understand the complexities and the nuances of the fascinating MENA region, Middle East and North Africa. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce a superb panel to talk about an area that may have fallen off our headlines, but its devastation has gone nowhere. I'm delighted to introduce, as the chair, who's going to be taking over from me from here, Alistair Burt, who has been Middle East Minister and is an enormously respected and, may I say, much loved and admired figure across the region. Alistair, over to you. Um, thank you uh, very much, uh, Charlotte. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, to be talking about a subject that we need to discuss in some depth, and I think the next hour will be very revelatory for all of us. And I'm delighted to be joined by two significant uh, colleagues. Um, next to me, uh, Shan Talabani uh, works with the Tony Blair Institute, uh, knows the region extremely well uh, and has valuable insights on the people behind the region and the uh, events which help shape it now and in the future. Con Coughlin, uh, defense correspondent, defense editor, defense correspondent, defense editor, I think these uh, monikers are very important in the uh, media world. Defence editor, much respected uh, defence editor of The Telegraph, and um, uh, the author of this book, which came out very recently, Assad, The Triumph of Tyranny. Uh, I've read it. Uh, I encourage everyone to read it, to understand uh, even more about what's happening in the region. Uh, but again, uh, Con knows the defence and security and the politics of the region extremely well. So we are well served by our panel. Um, and I wanted to start uh, by asking Con straight away, who is Bashar al-Assad? Um, tell us a bit about him and try and answer one of the questions that I think ought to be on our minds. Why didn't we spot this man coming? Well, thank you for your very generous introduction, Alistair. Who is Bashar al-Assad? Well, in a nutshell, he was the man who was born not to be president. I think that's one of the keys to uh, Bashar and our engagement with him over the years and the misunderstandings we've had. Um, as the second son of Hafez al-Assad, the founder of the Assad dynasty in Syria, um, Bashar, as a young man, was not really in the spotlight. Uh, his elder brother, Basil, was the one who was being groomed for the secular succession, which is what has tended to happen with some of these secular dictatorships in the Middle East. Uh, Gaddafi tried it with his son, Saif al-Islam. Uh, Mubarak tried it with his son um, and paid, paid the price. Uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, Hafez al-Assad, um, during the 70s and 80s, was very keen that his son, Basil, was groomed to, to succeed him as president. And of course, Hafez had suffered a major heart problem in the mid-1980s, uh, so he was very aware of his mortality. Um, and it, so that made him even more determined to uh, groom his eldest son for the leadership. Of course, there was opposition within the family, notably, 
from Hafez al-Assad's brother Rifat, uh, who tried to overthrow his brother when he had his heart problems in the mid-1980s. He failed. Uh, he was sent into exile. But even from exile, he was a very problematic individual. Basil, unfortunately for Hafez, died in a car crash uh, on his way to Damascus Airport, driving at speed in his uh, very fast Mercedes and drove into a roundabout and killed himself. At that time, Basha was studying in London to be an ophthalmologic, um, ophthalmologic surgeon at the London Eye Hospital in, in West London. Um, he was, I'm, I've interviewed some of the people who trained him at that time. He was a very ordinary student, a very diligent student, and as an individual, a very diffident person, uh, not the sort of person uh, anyone would expect to become the president of Syria. Uh, but everything changed very dramatically for Basha uh, after the death of his brother. He was literally picked up by a fleet of uh, black limousines, taken to a private airport, flown back to Damascus, and within days of his brother being buried, was put on a fast track course to becoming a dictator. Uh, and again, one of the more um, interesting subjects uh, for research for my book was talking to some of the people who had been charged with educating Basha in the ways of the world, particularly the rather ruthless world of Syrian Ba'ath Party politics, where you know, th there was a residual resentment to the idea that Hafez al-Assad could have one of his own family take over the country because um, the, the Ba'ath Party had been riven with different factions, uh, and through the years, different factions have been in power. So then, they, they, there were some people that thought, number one, why should Hafez remain in power? And of course, Hafez al-Assad came from min the minority Alawite sect. Um, so the majority Sunnis were, were rather resentful as well. But anyway, we, we move on towards 2000 when Hafez finally died of a heart condition. By this time, and this is where you start to see the cunning uh, of Bashar al-Assad. Uh, a lot of people still thought he was a diffident, awkward boy that was not really cut out for the rough and tumble of Syrian politics. But you see very quickly, uh, after Hafez after dies in the summer of 2000, Bashar moving very quickly to consolidate his position. Uh, he doesn't even tell his own family his father's died for fear that they will go and start their own campaign for the presidency or phone up Uncle Rifat and get him back from exile. He calls a meeting um, of his senior military commanders and goes through each one of them and telling them whether they, they, they could serve with him or whether they were about to be dismissed and if they were staying on that he would be testing their loyalty. So very, very quickly you get this idea of somebody making sure that he's got all the levers of power under his control. So why did we miss this? Why was this the impression in the West that it was an ophthalmic surgeon who'd taken over in Syria? He had, some, had a notable visit to London at an early stage when uh, the government you know, thought well of him and all that. What did we, why didn't we recognise that the very background he came from and his father's brutality in putting down um, any resistance was almost bound to be replicated in the sun. Well, I think there was a degree of wishful thinking, Alistair. Uh, I think, first of all, 
Hafizal Assad had been a very difficult person to deal with on the international stage. You'll recall that uh, Bill Clinton invested an enormous amount of effort trying to get Hafez al-Assad to sign a peace deal with Israel. And at every, every turn, Hafez uh, basically played for time and didn't do a deal and just, uh, just prevaricated. And I th on top of that, you know, he, he, he oversaw a rather ruthless regime. So when he died, I think, as I said, there was a degree of wishful thinking that this unknown quantity with a Western-educated wife his wife, Asma, uh, was a very uh, appealing individual in terms of her Western education. She was brought up in London, went to all the right schools, uh, hardly spoke Arabic at the time they married. Uh, and so there was this sort of sense that there was this new broom sweeping through Damascus. And after what had gone before, a lot of people bought into this. And of course, then you have, first of all, in his inaugural address, Bashar al-Assad talked about reform and democracy. Well, actually, he talked about reform. Uh, everybody thinks the speech is talking about democracy, and there is a brief moment called the Master Spring when political uh, groups that have been uh, suppressed under, Bash, uh, under Hafez start to make a comeback. And you have this sort of brief period of about a year where you have political movements meeting and making demands but within a year, most of these people have been locked up again. Uh, and, and Basher privately admits that he wasn't talking about political reform, he was talking about economic reform, and there's a very big difference. Then, of course, you have the 9-11 attacks, and everybody wants to get Syria on side, so there's a lot of attempts to bring Basher into the, into the Western fold. Right, so you, you, you paint a picture of the individual, um, coming to power unexpectedly uh, as, the, uh, as the second son and coming to power in a state uh, based in a, in a difficult region and having established himself and uh, dealt with an early stage of uh, reform process um, in a way that you know, perhaps the West would not have, not have wished him to go. Again, it seemed that we were subject to our own wishful thinking about how uh, how the region would move when we got to 2011 and when we got to the issue of the so-called Arab Spring and the various protests. Uh, and as we saw with um, Tunisia and then Egypt and then Libya, uh, what we had was a process, uh, it seemed to me, of um, successive autocrat leaders learning from the others. Uh, what had happened to Tunisia was not replicated quite by the Egyptians and certainly not by uh, Gaddafi in Libya. And then things began to happen in Damascus and Deraa and things began to happen in Syria. The story we know uh, full well of what happened, but I want to ask someone who knows the region very well whether at the outbreak of those protests, which I recall as people not wanting a change of regime, but wanting political reform, whether there was anything different that we could have done at that stage. Did we understand the opposition forces well enough? Did we again have wishful thinking about what we anticipated happening uh, with the protests, that they would follow the same course of events as they had uh, in North Africa? Did we get, what did we get wrong? And why did Syria progress with its civil war as it did? What do you think, Shan? I 
Thank you, Alistair. It's important to start off by saying that, you know, what you've just said, which is that the Syrian people had genuine grievances, uh, and as did many others in the region, um, at the outbreak of the Arab uprisings across the region. I think the trouble was, was that very quickly, the Western world, the UK included in that, um, again, wishful thinking is the terminology, Con, that you used, uh, took a very strong stance in support of particular factions uh, and of the opposition, not just in Syria, but in many other contexts as well. Uh, similarly in Egypt, in Tunisia, and I think what's very important to understand is that across the region, in each of these countries, there are similarities and there are you know, common denominators, but they're also very, you know, each country in the region has its own history, its own interactions with the Western world, with the rest of the world, and has its own um, significant contextual grievances as well. So I think what we thought was essentially a civil war very then very quickly escalated into more of a sort of geopolitical, um, well, at least a lot of geopolitical fa um, actors. Others got involved from outside Absolutely, Syria. absolutely. Um, so it really came from, again, I think a, a kind of a lack of understanding and also wishful thinking from Western partners uh, when it came to the region and what they saw as the future of the region. Um, such as sort of uh, very overtly supporting perhaps um, parties that su uh, supported a particular vision of political Islam and, and, uh, and others. Um, but it also came from um, a position where, you know, I have a story that I've shared with you before, Alistair, but uh, I spoke to someone, I was very lucky at the time to be able to speak to someone who was quite senior in the Arab world in 2011. And I was much younger then. Um, and I said, you know, so much is happening so quickly in the region. We've seen what's happened in Libya. We've seen what's happening in Egypt. You know, um, stories that my parents and even the generations before them, some of them, uh, you know, some of these figures had been in control and power in these countries. So is what's going to happen to Assad? You know, is he, is he going to fall as well? What, what would happen if he did? And the answer was, um, of course not. What are you on about? Assad is not going to fall in a day and a night. It's a completely different context here. And I think what that tells us is that actually, if you spoke to regional you know, figureheads and leadership in the region at the time, they had a much deeper understanding, naturally, of their own region and of the countries around them, and um, would have been able to provide perhaps more uh, you know, useful uh, input into how to address the asset problem initially. Did we misunderstand the ruthlessness with which Assad would be prepared to defend his position? I think the interesting thing is, is of course, you know, Assad comes from a particular background and, uh, you know, the, his father, of course, before him had a certain reputation and the Ba'ath party, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with Iraqi politics as well and with the Ba'ath in general, so uh, that comes with its con certain connotations. But I think Equally, uh, the reaction, let's say, immediately towards Syria and towards Assad didn't help in kind of pushing him into perhaps a certain camp and pushing him into a certain response. So not to take away from the, the genuine grievances of the Syrian people at the time and also now, having to deal with Assad, you know, more than 10 years on, but also understanding that, you know, actions have consequences. Right. 
This is not going to be a session when we simply look back over the years of the uh, of the conflict. We want to be looking ahead. We want to look at Syria today, and we want to look at what happens next. But I do want to talk about um, uh, one of the pivotal incidents in the civil war, which had significant ramifications, and get the impression of both Khan uh, and Shan in relation to that. And that was the notorious red lines. Uh, I'm sure this informed audience will remember very well that President, President Obama had made it clear, uh, or it seemed to have made it clear, that should chemical weapons be used in what was becoming a ruthless barrage against the civilian population as the conflict went on. If chemical weapons were used for him, it would be crossing a red line and there would be consequences. Of course, chemical weapons were used at Ghouta, uh, shown uh, right across the world, and the red line was called into question. Um, the British Parliament took a decision not to allow David Cameron the option of military action. It wasn't a decision to stop military action, it was just to prevent the Prime Minister having the opportunity uh, had it been necessary. Uh, shortly afterwards, President Obama also decided there was to be no further action. Were we wrong to take that decision? And what were the implications of showing an autocrat that the West was not prepared to take action? For instance, in Moscow, did someone learn a lesson from that? Um, Shan first and then uh, Con. Um, of course, Alistair, absolutely. I mean, I think a series of things happened in the region post the sort of Arab uprisings and uh, post um, the infamous red lines uh, comment by President Obama at the time. Um, and, it, you know, a, a series of things then happened, but the major and the first one was the red lines comment in the sort of the Western, the, you know, the Western approach or the Western essential threat that, yes, using chemical weapons were, was a red line and then you know, when chemical weapons were clearly uh, being used in the conflict, there was not really a strong or cohesive um, Western uh, response. And of course, you know, there were various contexts to that, and it's important to take into account what was going on in Europe and in the UK at the time. But it set a very dangerous precedent. And of course, then following that, it was the wider sort of US um, withdrawal from Iraq, from elsewhere in the region. And then, you know, we saw what's happened in Afghanistan, sadly, sadly in the last couple of years. Um, and then, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, no, it's no sort of secret that, of course, um, this has set a precedent for others, other geopolitical actors, other, um, other you know, powerful actors around the world um, to take certain decisions, including the decision to go to war, with, you know, in Ukraine. So a pivotal moment, not just for Syria, but implications beyond, Con? Yeah, I think if you look at the geopolitical landscape, it's not an underestimation to say that the invasion of Ukraine last year by Russia was one of the direct consequences of that vote. Because that, that vote, which started, you know, there was the parliamentary vote here. As you said, the Obama administration then referred the issue to Congress, yeah. knowing that Congress Wouldn't would not approve it. And as a result, no action was taken. And what you see, first of all, in Syria is the Iranians. We haven't mentioned Iran at all yet, but Iran is a very important player in the Syrian issue. The Iranians 
move very quickly to shore up the Syrian regime. I, I should also emphasize that you know, from day one, Assad was in control of the regime's defense. A lot of people thought he was a, he was, he was a captive of the Ba'ath Party and the Republican Guard, but the book demonstrates unequivocally that from March 2011, Assad was in charge. He was in charge of the repression. He was in charge of the chemical weapons attacks. Uh, and our failure to act against the Assad regime encouraged, first of all, Iran. Then it encouraged Russia to come in to defend them when the regime was in danger of being overthrown by Islamic State. And, our, and the other thing is that what I think, and, and you were there, Alistair, so I'd love to hear your views, because you, you were in the room, as they say. But there were, we'd, if, we'd, if we weren't taking military action to destroy the chemical weapon stockpiles, there was other things we could have done. We could have set up humanitarian corridors. By, by 2013, late 2013, there was a, a, a massive humanitarian crisis. Um, there was, there was a, an opposition movement that we could have backed. We could have established no-fly zones over Syria, as we did, had done over Iraq for the whole of the 1990s. There, there were alternative options. But almost it was as though if we, can't, if we can't do the chemical weapons, we're not doing anything. We turned our back on the con conflict, and the consequences were actually devastating for the Syrian people. But I'd love to know what, how you saw it, because you were inside the room. I was, and I'll be, uh, I'll be very brief. Um, I strongly supported the Prime Minister having the option to respond to the chemical weapons attack. Um, uh, but it wasn't a view shared by all Conservative colleagues, and the vote was lost. It was the first foreign policy vote, I think, lost by the government, and it's a very rare uh, occasion. Um, uh, I believe that unless President Assad saw that something was capable of preventing his military success, that something would be weighed in the balance against what was clearly a desperately unequal fight uh, between the civilian population uh, and his army, then it would go on to be the destruction of Syria and, uh, and his people. Evidence shows that subsequent to that we have half a million who have died, several million uh, displaced, and I think it would have been better to respond as the government had decided. What I don't know, and I've always been honest in saying, I do not know what the consequence of that intervention might have been. I also have to say the overwhelming uh, correspondence from the general public in 2013 to members of parliament was to not to take any action. Nine to one, my letters were saying, don't touch this, Mr. Burt, don't do anything. And that's what MPs received, and that was part of the, uh, part of the reason as well. So we had a situation in which there was no intervention by the West, but there was intervention by Russia and Iran, uh, as they acted to shore up a regime which they had close contact with and were determined to make sure that it didn't fall. I want to move on a little bit more to the present day because um, I want to put it to con one of the things you say in your book. Um, you say uh, during that period when it was clear that opposition was going to be crushed, uh, Assad made a speech to the Syrian parliament and it reads as follows addressing the Syrian parliament the same institution that a decade previously had rubber stamped his appointment as president 
Bashar claimed the unrest was all part of a foreign conspiracy to destabilize the Syrian government. And just as the American intervention in Iraq had failed, so it would in Syria. Quotes, this project will fall, quotes, Bashar declared, as the state-appointed delegates rose to their feet in unison to award him a standing ovation. He was right, it's failed, and Bashar al-Assad has won to all intents and purposes. That's it, isn't it? Well, it's a pretty hollow victory. Um, and, but it, I mean, there's an element of truth in that the, I mean, one of the problems with Syria and why it, was, why it became so difficult to act um, was because of all the foreign players that were moving in. Syria, I mean, I always said the reason the, the Lebanese civil war lasted so long was not because the Lebanese people have a peculiar proclivity to kill each other. It was because of all the foreign actors that entered it and Lebanon became a stage for a great world struggle, certainly and this was during the, civil, the Cold War. And I think something's true about Syria. You've got Russia, you've got Iran, you've got Saudi Arabia, you've got Qatar, you've got Turkey, uh, you've got the Western powers, uh, the US supporting various rebel groups, you've got the introduction of Islamic State after its formation in Iraq in 2014, moving across the border. Um, so th there's an element of truth in what Basha said. And in, in fact, today, you know, when he goes to Beijing and, and, it, and it, as, as part of his rehabilitation, he portrays himself as the, as the man who stood up to the Islamist uh, threat and, and vanquished them on behalf of the peoples of the Middle East. So there is an element of that, but, but it's, it's a hollow victory. First of all, he only, he only survived because, in particular, the, the intervention of the Russians in 2015 and the air power they brought and the devastation they wrought uh, to cities like Aleppo with the Iranians doing, and Hezbollah doing all the ground offences with the, the few loyalist Syrian forces that were left. Um, but he's only got just over half of the country under his control. Uh, Shahan will tell you, you know, about a third of the nor of northern Syria is under control of the, the Kurds and other and, and the friendly factions. Uh, and large tracts of the rest of the country are, are not under his control. So it's a very hollow victory. I was going to ask Shah now, um, how is Syria now? And will it hold its territorial integrity in the future? Or will Syria be dismembered to some degree? What's, what's the feeling on the ground at the moment? It's a really important question. I think um, in terms of, first off, I think it's important to talk about, yes, Assad is, you know, partially in control of large swaths of the country, the majority of the country, but it's a really narrowing or an ever continuously narrowing support base. You know, in recent weeks, um, in the last even couple of years, I think it's something that doesn't get as much coverage anymore. But there have still there have been protests in, in Syria, and interestingly, you know, protests in areas like Suwaida, which are um, Druze, Druze is the third largest minority community, religious minority in Syria, and these areas were actually during the bulk of the war. Um, Assad strongholds you know they were not necessarily pro-government but they definitely were not you know hubs for the opposition um, so there's this ever narrowing support base for Assad in the region however I think the general appetite geopolitically speaking around the region is not one of um, necessarily 
carving up of the country. There are lots of actors still involved. You have the Kurds in control of, of, of certain parts of the country, uh, particularly uh, areas which are um, fundamental actually for the regime because they're oil, oil rich areas. Um, you also have the Turks in control of certain areas and in support of certain opposition groups and other regional actors as well. Um, but uh, and as well as Turkey, which is uh, you know uh, an important important element of it, and I think for the Turks as well, they have certain national security um, issues, two of which are their refugee problem coming from Syria, and the second, of course, which is the Syrian Democratic Forces, because they have a very large Kurdish population themselves um, that they worry. Uh, and uh, are quite anxious about, could learn potentially from a carving up of a Kurdish region in, in Syria. There are huge numbers of refugees in Lebanon, yes. in Jordan, yes. um, Egypt. Do, do you see the refugees going back? Does Assad want them to go back? And do the countries that have been so extraordinarily generously hosting them want to push them back? Or are they going to be able to, to stay? So I think for the regime itself, um, having all, you know large swaths of so uh, many many, if not most of, of the Syrians who were living in the region or living in Syria um, in pre 2011 have now left the country, uh, as we all know and we feel, and it's become a you know a national concern even here in the UK uh, across the last decade and more. I don't think that the regime itself even uh, necessarily wants these people to come back. Um, they will play their cards and there are certain, you know, they may try to leverage the, the problem of the refugee crisis because they do know that it is a top concern for many of the surrounding countries who are harboring, you know, the, the brunt of the refugee issue. But even in countries like Turkey, for example, that I mentioned, where the refugee problem is at the top of the agenda, you know, both the opposition and the AKP Erdogan have put refugee, have basically spoken out about the want or the need to move refugees out of Turkey and back into Syria. Even there, I think there's been this general sentiment now with the, re with the, the most recent election in Turkey that, uh, no, actually, there's probably m less benefits um, in, in moving uh, Syrians back. And actually it could, uh, depending on what happens in Syria over the next few years, mean that more refugees will come in. So there's this one to sort of freeze the conflict, let's say. So a hollow victory with uh, uh, parts of Syria destroyed, population displaced, problems uh, around, the, uh, around the country caused by what has happened. I'm wondering, Con, did you... Did anybody ever verify a piece of intelligence information that I remember being given to me right at the beginning of the conflict? Um, uh, one of uh, President Assad's uh, siblings is called Maya, and there was a reported conversation picked up on the intelligence network uh, that Maya had been speaking to his brother, and he reminded Bashar that when his father had become president of Syria, the population was round about 10, 12 million. And he said the population is now 22 million. If it becomes 10, 12 million again, it doesn't really matter, does it? Did you ever get that piece of information? Was that ever verified? I, I, didn't, I didn't get that piece of information, but I did get quite a lot of information about the relationship between Maha and his brother. Uh, because Maha 
was regarded as very much being a hot-headed, uh, unreliable individual. I mean, somebody, somebody who knew him well prior to the Civil War said he spent most of his time drunk. So he, he, you know, he was not somebody suited for high office. But once the Civil War started, Maha was one of the people at the forefront of the very repressive measures. And I mean, the thing that I was really looking at was just how involved Bashar al-Assad personally was in the war crimes committed. Because, as you said, Alistair, we, we've got 500,000 people dead in this conflict. We've got half the population of 20-odd you know, million displaced. You know, three, three to four abroad, the rest displaced internally. I mean, this is a disaster of astronomical proportions. And yet, you know, at a time when we've got Putin being charged for war crimes over what he's done in Ukraine, nobody seems at all interested in holding uh, Bashar al-Assad to account. And, and if we ever get there, the role of Maha um, as the, the, the enforcer is going to be very important in what the investigations come up with. This brings us neatly to the issue of so-called normalisation. Um, just to say, we've got a very informed audience here, but just to say we've, we've got you know, quite a lot of time, fortunately, for this discussion. So uh, I'm wanting to stick with the panel for another uh, 15, 20 minutes and then open it up to, to questions from, uh, from the audience. Um, the reality on the ground, physically, is that the regime has obviously survived with its uh, allies, uh, with Russia and Iran. It's uh, nobody at the moment foresees the Assad regime falling. The consequences for that for neighboring states have meant that they now have to live with, uh, with what has been happening over the past decade or so. And so we've seen the Arab League uh, reaching out and a process nor normalization going on for a number of states uh, that are recognizing their, their reality. Is that the right thing to do? Is there another alternative? What do both of you make of this process that's going on at the moment? Well, let me just unpack a little bit why Assad is there. As, it, as we've discussed, Assad won because of the support of Iran and Russia. Um, Will that alliance stay in place, by the way? Well, the Russians, well, I, was Iranians. Just, I was going to say this. This is one of the this is one of the issues. The Russians last year had to withdraw significant amounts of their forces because of the setbacks they suffered in Ukraine. They still still have air assets there, and recently they bombed targets in Idlib. The Iranians um, were main were mainly supported by a lot of Hezbollah fighters who come across from Lebanon. They had to go back because of the internal problems in Lebanon. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty bare cupboard in terms of the military support Bashar's got. But the key thing that's happened in the region is the growing disenchantment of pro-Western regimes in the, mid in the Middle East, with particularly the Biden administration, and this is particularly acute in Riyadh, which um, has been very... Um, unsettled by the hostility of the Biden administration, with Biden calling the ruler of the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia in public a pariah. This is unheard of diplomatic speech. As a consequence of this, we are seeing a lot of a lot of engagement with Russia, with China. Um, we've seen a massive rehabilitation 
taking place between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which a year ago was completely off the cards. So as a consequence of that, you've got a very weak Syria. You've got bigger fish to fry in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia's, for example, the, you know, the, prime, the prime goal there is economic development and asserting its position as a global power as opposed to regional power. And they don't want anymore to be bothered with the Syrian problem. It, 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 I mean, they'd love Assad to go. But the other, the other quick point I'll make is that if Assad went, who would replace him? And after what happened in Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wariness that if you got rid of Assad and given the history of Muslim Brotherhood activity in Syria, that you'd have another Muslim Brotherhood in Damascus um, running the country, uh, and that would not be in regional interest. There's a whole mix of things at play here which means that you know, people are prepared to tolerate a rehabilitated Syria without actually liking Syria. Yeah, if I, if I may as well, Alistair, just on that. I think um, it's important to remember that a lot of these Arab states who are now, or at least you know, who are within the framework of the Arab League, very early on were calling for things like conditional normalization. I think that was the terminology that the Saudis used. And, and conditional because they wanted to ensure that there was some form of political settlement in any kind of um, you know, interaction with Assad in the future. Unfortunately, what happened was that because of the sort of lack of want or momentum from the general kind of international community when it came to reaching a political settlement in Syria, I think all in all, the countries in the region essentially um, made the decision that it made more sense to renew ties not because they have a natural affinity to the Assad regime, but that it would better essentially to have an in with the regime rather than to be in, you know, have the regime in total isolation. And I think that comes from an understanding that the more, you know, even things like sanctions regimes need to be understood in a way that what are the implications? In the long term, does it mean that countries like Syria naturally and the Assad regime feel that they have to strengthen their relationships with countries like Russia and Iran um, because of you know no other avenues to turn to. So I don't think that the sort of the normalization um, as they've been calling it really is a natural you know affinity with Syria and I don't think it actually um, it, it hasn't, or at least leadership in the region, high-ranking Arab officials have admitted that political results are not going to be an imminent repercussion of the, of the normalization process, but it is in response to real grievances from these states and from uh, a fear that it could escalate further and that it would have a real impact on them, whether it's um, you know, the captagon trade, which is affecting countries all over the region, which is a top priority and very, very worrying, um, or whether it is um, when it comes to jihadism and other, and, other, and other things as well. How big a dilemma is this for the Arab world? That the reality is on the ground Assad has survived. The cost has been terrible. Uh, the crimes committed, the, uh, the deaths of half a million, the expulsion of many others. It's, and of course this is a regime that was expelled from the Arab League and is now brought back. But the practical reality is Jordan has to deal uh, with its neighbor. Uh, the Captagon trade has caused uh, and uh, would suggest even further 
havoc to come um, means that there has to be a reality in dealing with the regime. But the moral dilemmas of that and the face presented to the rest of the world can't be comfortable, can it? No, I don't think they are comfortable, but I think, I think there's a degree of pragmatism at play here. Um, as we've intimated, Syria is now basically a narco state. Uh, Bashar al-Assad's the new Pablo Escobar. Uh, he, there is an office in the presidential palace in Damascus that controls the Capsicum trade. Um, Just explain Capsicum for a second. Uh, well, Capsicum, I mean, I'm not an expert on mm-hmm. narcotics, but... Um, no one is making that suggestion in this room, <laughs> even though you work for the Telegraph. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I understand it, it it's, it's a form of, uh, it's a stimulant like cocaine, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not really an expert, but it is, it is a it's fairly, addictive. it's, it's an, an addictive, addictive drug. drug. And it's ta- it, 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 it is now flooding um, the, mar- the drugs market throughout the Middle East. It's particularly a problem, as you said, in Jordan. It's even got into Israel. Um, it's, Saudi Arabia is badly affected. A lot of countries are affected by this. Um, and this trade was, 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 was around a decade ago. And, of course, Lebanon has a long history of involvement in the drugs trade. Mm. A lot of Hezbollah's yes, financing uh, comes through the drugs trade. Um, there are drugs networks reaching into the Balkans and etc. But the, the Syrian regime very cynically took control of it as a way to make money. And I think the latest U.S. estimates are about $5 billion dollars a year come into the presidential palace from the drugs trade. So, so, but Syria's a failed state. It's a NATO state. Uh, it's a very weak state. And as I've, as I've said, th- there are far more important issues around the region to be dealt with than just focusing on Syria. I don't think any, any of the countries that have had to engage with Damascus do so from a spirit of, of, uh, of enthusiasm. They do it be through real politic and, and the wider picture and the wider security challenges, not least that those posed by Iran. Um, and, and the whole issue of Iran and the, the alliance between Iran and China and Russia. I mean, these are very challenging times for the region, uh, particularly with an absent America. So in that context, you basically have to sort of look at look at Syria and say, well, we'll have to deal with these people, but we don't like dealing with them, um, and we prefer there to be other options. But at the moment, there aren't any. That would be my assessment. So, Cheyenne, there's no there's no moralising from the West in relation to this. This is a practical response to the turmoil of the the last decade, in which the West may have played a part, but at this stage. Uh, if Syria is being um, to a degree rehabilitated into the region, there's no room for wagging fingers from the West because of what's happened. Yeah, not at all. I think the trouble is is that for a lot of regional partners, you know, the West regional partners in the Middle East, um, the indication or when the US essentially in 2011 under the Obama administration implied that it would be refocusing its attention away from the, the region. Um, it really meant that regional actors 
uh, had to take matters into their own hand. And some of that has materialized, materialized very soon after that. And some of it has materialized you know, over the last year and two years, um, including the rehabilitation of Assad to some extent. Um, so I think it's, you know, we can't, I think, you know, Western, the West shouldn't really be chastising the region when it's having to really deal with the immediate effects of um, what's happening in neighboring countries like Syria. Uh, rather, it should be using its uh, relationships uh, with some of these countries in the region to help find a resolution to the, the conflict or at least to be most useful and to, to both support but also build on um, what's already being you know, furthered by the Arab states, primarily coming from you know, uh, Riyadh and, and Abu Dhabi from, 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 uh, from the Gulf. I think what's been fascinating about the last 45 minutes is the picture that's begun to emerge of the, not just the conflict, but the consequences. We started with, which, with which something which could have just have been another domestic uh, revolt, as in some of the North African states. Um, but Syria isn't Tunisia. And a domestic revolt became a civil war with wider ramifications. The decisions taken by others meant that Russia gained an opportunity from the situation. The influence of the West declined. Iran was emboldened. And all this was taking place at the same time as the region was undergoing change, partly as a consequence of the after effects of 2011. We saw, as uh, both Shahan and Khan have mentioned, a, a reassertion of the region, a realization that no longer was it to look over its shoulder at what the West either wanted to happen, wished to happen, or was seeking to uh, impose because people were going to make their own decisions for their own interests. And the implications of that became seen in a new diplomatic round of engagement, not least uh, with Iran from the UAE and Saudi, recognizing that any conflict with Iran which had Western involvement would be catastrophic for them. So they had to start their own descaling of tension, particularly after the nuclear deal was walked away from by the United States. New relationships with Israel, with the Abraham, Abraham Accords, and the discussions now taking place, which again, perhaps unthinkable, only a few years ago between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So the consequences of the revolt, people walking through the streets of Syria in 2011 with placards saying we need some political reform has in effect shaped the region as a whole with worldwide consequences that could not have been envisaged when it kicked off. Um, before we ask the audience for their views, what happens next? What's the next step? in both the relationship of Syria with its neighbors, but their neighbors with themselves in, as uh, Charlotte reminded us at the beginning, a fascinating region of fundamental interest and importance to the United Kingdom. What's going to happen next, Con? Well, I think Sharon made a very good point that 
I mean, if we are, if anyone's going to engage with Syria, the, the bottom line must be with the aim of trying to resolve the conflict, because it is a frozen conflict. Um, and you know, various attempts have been made to try and get some kind of peace dialogue going. So at the very least, if, if there is going to be rehabilitation, there, there should be some effort put into this. And th there, are, there are occasional spurts of activity. The, the Assad regime does not feel that it has to engage yet. But you know, the, other, the other thing is that Iran has taken advantage of its support for Assad by, by building this enormous network of military bases along the Israeli border. So the, the, whole, the whole Israel issue is coming back into focus. And we've had the Abram, Abram Accords, where we've had a number of Arab states establish some kind of engagement with the Israelis. Or make more public engagements that were already there. Yeah. Um, and, and now we've got, we, last week we had the Israeli tourism minister going to Riyadh. Yeah, there's a complex negotiation going on at the moment with the Americans about security guarantees in return for some kind of process with Israel. That will have a, a very deep bearing on Syria, which, you know, under the Assad regime, has made itself the flag bearer of Arab resistance to the state of Israel. So, you know, there's a lot going on, and, and it's very difficult to predict the outcomes. Sharon? I think in the like the the you know the immediate to short term, um, unfortunately, uh, primarily for the Syrian people, there doesn't seem to be a kind of resolution to the conflict um, that we're going to see. However, it doesn't mean that you know we shouldn't be thinking about um, what will happen if we just stay put and we don't do anything. And I think, you know, we didn't really talk, we didn't have a chance to really talk about sort of um, ISIL uh, in Syria in, in depth, uh, Alistair, but, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a challenge that still remains. I think, you know, um, territorially, yes, uh, ISIS was has been defeated to some extent. However, that is very, you know, what's fundamental to that defeat is a number of things. Yes, no, sorry, I can see you looking no, at no. me. I, I want to say, forgive me, do talk about it now, because one of the questions I might have lodged is um, if, if some elements of opposition have been defeated and there's no prospect of, uh, of political reform, does this push people towards the Daesh ideology? Does it gain from what has happened? Or is its ideology so different to the ordinary political um, uh, to, to the political activity of what was a pretty secular state in, in, in terms of Syria um, but indeed how will Daesh uh, respond to this and has it given might it give them an extra boost of life yeah I mean even just recently we've been we've seen you know ISIS hit and run operations there are you know numerous um, hundreds of sleeper cells, you know, uh, large-scale sleeper cells across Syria and Iraq, and primarily in Syria. Um, you know, we've seen uh, car bombings more recently in the Sayyad Zainab area near Damascus. Um, what this really means is that ISIS is very much as an ideology still alive and present. And I think uh, if you know, it, it, it really depends on two or three factors. 
what happens with, with ISIL in Syria. One of them is what happens with the Kurds in Syria. So the Kurds in Syria were sort of the primary forces on the ground uh, who, had, uh, who still do have, um, who were pushing against um, the, the, the ISIS presence in Syria and in Iraq. Uh, with the support of the Global Coalition. They still maintain that support from the Global Coalition. Um, and they operate within the autonomous administration of Northeast Syria. So far, they have done a very good job um, of, of pushing back against ISIL uh, territorially. And they also control these large prison camps that we often read about in the papers here in the UK, Al-Hol, one of them, the, the, the infamous Al-Hol. Um, this has all been done with US military help. Um, so in chase, you know, they've managed to chase and prevent ISIS from gaining ground, but they still need support. You know, if, if you want, in, particularly in light of the effort, still kind of incoherent by Iran and Russia and, and also Turkey, but for its different reasons, to really dismantle the, the Kurdish forces or the Kurdish present in, in Syria, presence in Syria, um, they need support because the immediate effects of any dismantling of the Kurdish areas in Syria will mean that ISIS will retake those areas very quickly. Um, and uh, simply put, you know, Syria is very, very important in the wider anti-terrorism fight. It's still an attractive place for jihadists around the world, whether it's Uyghur terrorists from China or whether it's um, you know, people who uh, support that sort of radical ideology uh, here in Europe. Um, and the other thing it really, really depends on is the socioeconomic status of Syria. You know, people are, uh, the majority of Syrians, 90%, I believe, over 90%, live below the poverty line. Um, you know, if there isn't any tackling of the socioeconomic issues in Syria, uh, coupled with the fact that this ideology uh, still has, uh, you know, a certain support base, then yes, you will easily see um, radical terrorists such as ISIL or ISIL affiliates and even ISIL itself reemerge. And even the caliph, you know, the current caliph, the fifth caliph of, of ISIS is still based in Syria. So it is an attractive place if you are a jihadist or a terrorist to go there. Thank you. Um, we're fortunate to have uh, just about half an hour uh, left. What I would like to do now is invite what I know is both a distinguished and knowledgeable audience to have the opportunity to ask questions. I'll take a couple at the time. I want to reserve a little bit of time at the end for two final questions that I've got if they've not been asked. But this is opportunity. Um, the bright lights are shining on me, but I will endeavor to, to pick out uh, people when they put their hands up. Um, so the, the lady in the, in the blue. And there's a microphone. As, as best as possible, short questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm from Syria, from the city of Afrin, which is invaded by Turkish uh, government. And now it is under the control. Like uh, over, uh, over five years, uh, uh, Turkey changed all the demography of it. They replaced them by Turks, by Arabs. And now Kurdish couldn't access to their uh, properties and their uh, their city and uh, now uh, and the Turkey, Iran, Russia, all of them, uh, and uh, and the opposition because opposition is an extremist opposition. It is not a democratic opposition to be supported by the coalition. 
just the coalition is working in the western, uh, eastern uh, Euphrates, uh, backing the. Uh, so uh, Turkey and uh, the opposition and uh, all of them are against the Kurdish forces in the eastern and against America, against the coalition, which is of 72 countries. So. Uh, the, the opposition is not a, a democratic opposition to be supported. For that reason, there is no hope. We cannot, uh, like the, similar to Iraqi, Iraqi government now, there is a destabilization. So the, uh, for my question is why the coalition like give a, a blind eyes to the, uh, to the drones of Turkey who are coming and uh, mumming the Kurdish forces. They say they are terrorists. Even they uh, fought terrorists and they defeated ISIS by Kurdish. How they are terrorists and they defeated terrorists. So okay. uh, they are uh, supported by a coalition. Thank you. So why, why they are okay. giving a blind eyes? This is my question. Thank you very much. Um, I'll take them one at a time, otherwise uh, <laughs> uh, we might forget the, the, the complex situation of politics in the northern area of Syria aptly described by our questioner. Um, who'd like to tackle that? I'm happy to, if, if that's okay. So I think when it comes to sort of the Turkey question in Syria, uh, Turkey, of course, you know, the, the coalition is comprised of a... I actually don't know how many states are in the coalition. How many are there in the coalition? Oh, 72. Yes. 72. So I didn't want to make a mistake. So 72 countries. So they all have their own varied relationships with, with Turkey. And But if you're looking at it from a UK perspective, you know, Turkey is a long-standing, historic partner of this country. Uh, and that relationship has been... Uh, you know, pretty pretty strong, you know, throughout the time that Turkey has existed as a republic. Uh, it has had its um, complications uh, with the, the more, you know, with the current government in Turkey. But the reality is, is that that current government has now been re-elected. I think, like, the, the key here is to understand that for Turkey, the Syria question when it comes to the Kurd is very much a domestic political issue. You know, Turkey has a very large Kurdish population. Uh, it worries, and you know, if you were Turkish or if you were the president of Turkey, uh, you would be anxious and worried about a political outcome in Syria that granted the Kurds, you know, a, a lot of autonomy, such as what we've seen in Iraq, for example, after 2005. So, or since 1992, but officially since 2005. So. I understand, you know, the, the, the Turkish positionality. I think what can give us maybe a little bit of optimism in this kind of doom and gloom of the, of the current situation in Syria and, uh, is that the current Turkish president, Erdogan, who's just been re-elected, him and his foreign minister, Hakan Fidan, they were actually the primary people back in 2012 uh, or, yeah, in 2012, who negotiated the peace deal with the, the Kurdish uh, PKK in, in, in Turkey, which have been, you know, the main accusation of the Turks has been that they are the affiliates of the Kurds in Syria. So the fact that they were the ones that really pioneered that peace process, 
um, though it didn't eventually work out, it means that there might be some willingness, particularly as um, Tur you know, Turkey is kind of repositioning itself um, at the moment, given the geopolitical realities of the region, and both in Europe and in the Middle East, that it finds itself in. And I think a good policy position to f is to find ways, you know, for the UK and for Western allies, is to find ways to alleviate the economic burden on ordinary Syrians. Um, so to really not remove, but reassess how we do sanctions and how we work with sanctions and how we you know, use sanctions to target people. Um, but also to think about a careful and like a calculated way of engagement with the regime to some extent, whether that be through partners and allies or whether that be directly is a, is a question that I'm sure many are asking. Um, and to do that, both keeping in mind economic relief and also a sort of accommodation or exchange for the protection of the Kurdish areas. And I think that will alleviate, if, if there is that position, that will alleviate kind of the hawkish position from Turkey towards the Kurds. Con, the ramifications of a civil dispute in Syria for Turkey and Kurdish people? Well, I come back to the geopolitical position um, and you know, there, there is an American presence still in northern Syria, towards the east, um, protecting the remnants of the SDF and the autonomous areas. You've also got the Russians, and you've got the Turks. And in a sense, this is, this is a, reminds me of the great game being played out in northern Syria. And at various times, the, the Americans and other coalition partners don't want to upset the Turks because they're very useful as a bulwark against Russia. Um, and I just think, I, I, I just think the, this autonom autonomous Kurdish region, it just finds itself stuck between a, hard, a rock and a hard place at the moment. So I come back to the point that, you know, if there is going to be any form of rehabilitation with Syria, it must be on the basis that some kind of peace settlement uh, is established, where a lot of these issues are resolved to the satisfaction of the, the people who are suffering. Thank you. Gentleman there. We may have answers, but we don't necessarily have solutions. <laughs> Sir. Uh, so I just wanted to ask a quick follow-up, which was essentially those opposition areas were from Idlib all the way around. Um, is it undermining for Assad that they're still outside his control? Or is he sort of cynically willing to put up with that, given his position in the rest of the country is secure? Because there's lots of different types of areas that he hasn't moved on. And um, it sort of puzzles me just how long that can hold. And does he have the ability to do anything about it? Well, the Idlib area is particularly interesting. Um, and yeah, from the Assad regime's point of view, their historic enemy has always been the Muslim Brotherhood. And one of the big concerns when the uprising started back in 2011 was the role the sort of Muslim Brotherhood uh, remnants, uh, allies would play. And very quickly, they seemed to link up, as you'll probably remember, with, with groups like the Nusra Front. And so to have them all contained up in Idlib, which historically has been a very, a very sort of uh, Islamist uh, 
sympathetic to the Islamist cause. I think, I think from Assad's point of view, he knows where they are. Um, and I think he's got more important things to do at the moment than target them. But it also is a focus for American activity. It's, um, it's also a focus for Russian activity. So it sort of keeps everybody engaged in a, in a funny way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to, to briefly add to what Com said, I think um, there is, of course, you know, Assad wants to be in control of the whole country, and he's using the kind of sovereignty card to f essentially undermine the opposition as well as the Kurds in the Northeast, ever, ever, ever. But I think at the end of the day, the Assad regime, as Khan pointed out earlier, is primarily functioning on um, narcotics. You know, that's their main source of income. So, uh, you know, the idea that he could just, you know, somehow easily take control of these areas and actually be able to maintain that stability and control of those areas, um, it's not a given. And also, because of the wider, you know, context of all of these different actors in Syria, it's also probably not likely that it would happen in the near future. Another question? Um, uh, gentleman on the edge of the row first, then yourself. Thank you very much. It's been a very informative discussion. Um, Shayan, you spoke really powerfully about the support necessary for the Kurds to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS. One of the things that the Kurdish authorities have asked quite directly of the UK as part of that support is that the UK repatriates its nationals detained in northeast Syria. That includes around 60 women and children, some of whom were forcibly compelled to come to Syria, were trafficked to Syria by ISIS. So the US has warned of the security risks of keeping British nationals there. The Kurds have asked us to take them back. They've described it as a ticking time bomb. So I guess my question is, why has the UK not decided to provide that support? And what do you think are the risks inherent in that? Thanks. I mean, I can definitely comment on the risks. Um, uh, I can't comment as much as on why the UK hasn't acted on that necessarily. Uh, but I think the risks are, like, fundamentally um, that, you know, these are, you know, they're not exaggerating when they say that they are taking time bombs because you're, you have women and children and many, many uh, young people, you know, underage people who are in these camps and in these prisons in these areas who have very little prospect, you know, they have, they're in very poor economic con conditions, um, you know, not receiving, um, you know, box standard education, um, not having very much hope um, or any prospects uh, for, you know, the near and long-term future. Um, so it's a breeding ground for, for, you know, radical ideology and for future jihadists and jihadism. So it's not an exaggeration to say that it's a ticking time bomb. I think you could easily see, if handled incorrectly, these areas become, you know, terrorist strongholds. On why the UK hasn't, you know, kind of repatriated its own citizens, I mean, it's something I ask myself, and I'm sure um, maybe Alistair can give us a little bit more insight on that, actually, Alistair. I'll, I'll let Con answer first, but I, I, w I will answer your question. Well, it is certainly a problem. Um, and I mentioned earlier the whole issue of war crimes uh, and people who supported of their own free will the violence of Islamic State, in my view, should be tried for their offences and their association with Islamic State. And initially there were discussions about setting up such tribunals, 
but it's become, it's just impractical. And a bit like in 2013, the West has, has basically decided it's got better things to worry about, particularly after Ukraine. So this has really fallen down the list of priorities. Um, I don't want to get involved in conservative internal politics, but I would suggest that given the difficulties that the current government is having on the migration issue, um, politically trying to repatriate people who, as I said, of their own free will, went to join and fight with Islamic State would be problematic, to say the least. Um, I think in time we have to do that, though. Um, I agree with Shan's analysis. I was in Iraq last week, uh, and I did have a discussion about uh, the camps and those who were there, and the conditions are bad. Daesh has significant influence the longer people stay there, the worse it will be. Uh, there are children there who have committed no offence. And the humanitarian situation uh, and I think the legal situation is very bad. There will have to be a big concerted effort to do something about it. But I think ultimately it will be forced on states that have their own nationals there. Um, it's, it hasn't been done up to now simply because of the passage of time. You can put things off, but sooner or later you won't be able to, and it's a big decision, not for the present government, because I suspect in the next year or so it, w it won't become acute, but it will come during the course of the next government, and uh, James Cleverly will have to, or uh, any successor will need to think about this. It will become of greater interest. Sir, and then Madam. Um, hello, my name is Winnie Sterling and I uh, run the Trojan Women Project. I've been working with Syrian refugees since 2013, initially in Jordan, but uh, sooner or later the refugee crisis comes to you. Um, there are, uh, and, and we have kept touch with all the people we've worked with, some of whom are still in Jordan, some of whom have moved to Turkey, some of whom are uh, in Europe or the UK. Given the... Uh, 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 the situation now in places like Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, where you know the Syrian diaspora in Turkey um, was a major, major issue in the election, and um, you know, th can you, there is a there is a scenario where those countries might start to expel Syrians back into Syria, and what do you think that will what, what effect do you think that will have, and when do you think that will start coming happening? Um, the other remark I'd make is my uh, uh, note that um, it seems to be the first rule of international diplomacy is to throw the Kurds under the bus, but that is a different question. But the refugee, you know, this issue in the neighbouring countries. You, you touch on a painful point of, of history that the Kurds know well. Uh, yes, uh, colleagues. Well, I, I think I think. You're right. I think, I mean, if, if you look at the, the rehabilitation process, it was started by King Abdullah in Jordan um, at the end of last year. And it was started primarily because for, for, for his own national interests, he's got to sort out this problem with the Syrians. It's a similar problem with Lebanon. Lebanon's virtually bankrupt, if not bankrupt. It's got so many internal issues to deal with. It's, it's really is struggling. So, you know, and, this, and, and, we've, and Chan's already mentioned the, the difficulties in Turkey. So, you know, the pressure, 
in Ankara, Beirut, and Naman to resolve this is pretty intensive. And if it's not resolved through negotiation, then yes, I can see them being forced back across the border. And that will, be, that will destabilize Syria. And I, I, I think it's quite difficult to, to work out just how the Syrian regime would, would cope with this. Because a lot of these people are not pro-Assad. A lot of these people's families have suffered horribly at the hands of the Assad regime. So it becomes very problematic. And as we said, this is a frozen conflict. This war has not been, is not over. So could it reignite the war again? Discuss. Shan? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of the, the countries who are, you know, uh, are now, you know, home, home to large populations of Syrian refugees, I think they've realized that even though it's very politically and financially costly to them um, to, 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 to have Syrian refugees in such large numbers, in their states, they've realized that actually, um, you know, ending, in some cases like Turkey, their deterrent role in Syria and enabling a return of Syrian refugees could actually push, and would very likely, in my, in my view, push more Syrians to flee Syria if, if the Syrian army were to take back control of these areas. So though it's politically and financially costly to them, um, I think they realize that perhaps, you know, just trying to, to keep them, um, certainly in the case of Turkey, in the country is uh, the best option at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, on the Kurds, I think the Kurds are the victims of geography. You know, I think that, that's, that's fundamentally what it is. I don't like to, you know, I'm not very poetic about it. I think that's the reality. Um, but again, I don't think it's unfeasible to, to think about a solution uh, that takes the Kurds into consideration. I think um, when it comes to the current, uh, you know, regime in Turkey, for example, you know, that's a fundamental question that uh, perhaps we should be pushing more on because, like I said, there was willingness in the past uh, by Erdogan and the current foreign minister who at the time was the head of intelligence to push for a, a negotiation or a peace deal. So it, it's not unlikely, it's just uh, when and if there's the enough political momentum to, to push for it. It is, of course, illegal to force refugees to return. It's called refoulement. Um, I'm not sure if that troubles certain Lebanese politicians in particular uh, who've been advocating it for some time. Um, but certainly it would cause a major crisis of a, 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 a variety of implications if it was attempted. Um, okay. Um, I'm going to take one final question and then wrap up with uh, a concluding question to my, uh, to my colleagues on the panel. Alma Mata from Sutton Coalfield. I want to loop round and uh, focus on what caused the instability in the first place, and that was the Western intervention, in my view. Um, when Cameron was in leadership, we decided to fund the rebels, which turned out to be Islamists. And I was fortunate enough to visit Syria in 2011, a few weeks before the war, and I was really surprised at the um, amount of money the Saudis were pumping into Syria, building brand new mosques, especially in Aleppo. So isn't the reason, or one of the reasons why we are where we are is Western intervention in the first place, trying to put democracy in a country which doesn't work, which we've learned from Iraq and other 
countries and Libya, exactly. Uh, well, I think it's my turn. Um, <laughs> having, you know, as Con says, been, been in the room to give some sort of explanation of how we try to approach 2011, and we may have got certain things wrong. In the first place, the, the humanitarian consideration was very strong. Remember, in each of these areas, there was immediate threat to life. In Libya, the threat to life in Benghazi uh, and Gaddafi's known propensity to kill his opponents and the likelihood of a further massacre. And Syria, as we've just described, had a very clear history of how it dealt with its, uh, with its protesters. And I was moved particularly because I knew some of the democratic Syrian opposition. I know the situation subsequently became more complicated. I don't resolve from that from a second. Uh, as both Cheyenne and, and Con said, others came into the situation with different motives. But originally, I met the people who had marched against Assad carrying banners. And when they were killed, and when their children were tortured and dumped on their doorsteps dead, I thought we were right to take a view that that was the sort of regime that we had no truck with. But we didn't intervene. We didn't seek to force uh, a consequence. We did work with others. Uh, the Arab League were very clear about their views about what had happened in Syria. Uh, and there were forces. We didn't give lethal support, but we sought to support those democratically who were trying to affect change. I think the base of the question about what we have learned about regime change is very pertinent. I don't think there will be efforts for regime change in the region as far as I can see in the future. It will leave uncomfortable questions. If women are treated badly by certain regimes, there will be no intervention from the West to try and uh, assist their situation. People will have to take a view on whether they're comfortable with that. These countries are not all like ours. There won't be a pathway to democracy as we know it, because some countries won't end up as Western democracies, but they will be stable, they will be well-governed, they will be governed with consent, and I think that is something that the United Kingdom needs to recognize. I certainly understand that better, probably, than when I first went into the uh, office in 2010. But I still think that there is an issue of accountability for those who take wicked action against their people and kill them. And as well as answering your question, ma'am, um, I wanted to conclude with a question to my colleagues here. What does the situation in Syria now say about accountability? What does happen to those who, because of their power, are able to kill innumerable numbers of people in order to keep in place uh, a system of governments which lacks the consent of a significant proportion of the people, which can't be measured in normal way. But what happens to accountability, and where is the West now in the future of the Middle East after all that's gone on? Uh, if I could take Con first and then conclude with uh, Sharon. Well, back in the 1990s, um, I spent a lot of time in the Balkans covering the Bosnian Civil War. I was in Sarajevo as a journalist. Um, witnessing firsthand the terrible suffering of the people there and the appalling criminal, uh, the, the war crimes being committed on a daily basis 
And at the time, I thought, will these people, the people responsible for this, ever stand trial? It seemed a very remote prospect. And yet here we are, nearly 30 years later, and the Milosevic's and the Karavaches and the rest of them have all, been, have all stood trial and faced the consequence of their actions. I see no reason why the same should not apply to the Assad regime and the various perpetrators of war crimes. As I said before, Putin has now been charged with the war crimes to the extent he can't even attend G20 meetings and, and travel to South Africa, etc. Um, and I think w we need to find the will to do this. I mean, when I was researching the book, you know, th there's a million pages of documented evidence of the war crimes. There's videos, there's mobile phone uh, videos that have been... I mean, one of, the, one of the dreadful tactics the Syrian military used was to film their atrocities and put them out on the internet to, to try and persuade people not to protest against the regime. We have this material. Um, we should try and find a way. Of course, the, the reason the International Criminal Court has not taken action is because everyone's afraid of upsetting Russia, um, uh, etc. But, you know, we have these problems in Bosnia. We got round them, and, and justice prevailed, and justice should prevail on Syria. Shan? Yeah, I think it's important to sort of talk about this distinction, I think, between, like, structural violence in this sense and direct violence. So in the case of Syria, you know, you have both. You have the direct violence of the regime um, towards the Syrian people, but also the, 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 the sort of structural violence of corruption and, and the economic woes of the Syrian people. Um, the solution, you know, to add to what Khan said, the solution is not to simply, you know, freeze conflicts and to prioritize stability over accountability. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be, like I said before, chastising states that feel like they are in a position where they need to take that, you know, that stance because they are either immediate neighbors with the, with the regime or because they are, you know, feeling the, the implications of the conflict the most. Um, but what it should mean is that we need to think a little bit more creatively about how we talk about accountability and how we hold people accountable. So whether that is, you know, again, like I said, understanding how we use sanctions, and I think that applies beyond just Syria to other places in the region too. You know, ensuring that sanctions are not, um, you know, hurting the people, the ordinary people, the most. Because yes, if you are, you know, Assad and or in the regime, you are benefiting from. Um, both what is a corrupt system structurally and fundamentally, but also from you know narcotics and other illegal forms of uh, you know making money essentially. So um, I think in order to understand you know accountability, um, we need to come up with solutions or approaches that are a bit more creative and that balance um, both that understanding of structural violence and also direct violence, so that we don't end up like places like Iraq, you know, Libya, Lebanon, which perhaps, you know, had some forms of stability for certain periods of time, but, you know, you've seen the most um, people now protesting on the streets in those countries decades on from some of the most harsh conflicts. So I think that's a, an important kind of distinction to make when thinking about approaches to, to, to Syria. Thank you very much. Um, Distinguished colleagues and friends and uh, ladies and gentlemen, 
uh, I hope you will agree with me that you could not have had two better uh, exponents of understanding the region and the crisis in Syria than we've had with Con Cochran and Shayan Talabani. Uh, we've been privileged to listen to their insights. I can also say from up here we're privileged that you have an interest. Uh, the Middle East matters to the United Kingdom and the Conservative Party and that you've all taken the time and trouble to be here when you could have been doing many other things is deeply appreciated. Uh, it shows a, a level of respect for the region uh, and determination that the United Kingdom's interests should remain. Uh, and uh, the Conservative Party has that at the heart. And I commend, uh, as always, our organizers, uh, CMEC and the work of Charlotte Leslie, who's done a remarkable job over the years, yeah. still continues to do so, but provides an opportunity for a depth of understanding of a complex region which I think is unrivaled. So please show your appreciation for my two panelists and for Charlotte Leslie and CMAC.